Hello, and thank you for joining us for the PARP inhibitors assessing the rapidly evolving treatment landscape live webinar. We are excited to have you all with us and look forward to an exciting discussion with the faculty. The AUA would like to thank AstraZeneca and Merck for providing independent educational grants in support of this activity. Finally, I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, Dr. Ashley Ross, for his time, talent, and expertise in developing this program. I will now turn this activity over to Dr. Ross to begin our knowledge assessment. The learning objectives uh, are gonna be the following, and they should note that this is the first of a three-part live webinar where we're gonna focus on germline genetic testing, both in general and in regards to prostate cancer. We'll touch on somatic testing as well, and we'll also try to understand some of the inherited syndromes as they're related to prostate cancer. Regardless, at the end of this activity, we hope you'll be able to, one, review the recommended criteria for genetic testing of prostate cancer patients and options for testing of those men, Two, explain the importance of, of testing for germline pathogenic variants and their implications for utilizing novel therapeutics, such as PARP inhibitors, and for cascade testing among patients, the patient's family members. And three, identify men with BRCA1 or 2 pathogenic variants, invariants in other key inherited syndrome genes, um, and understand their, those, those men's risk of prostate cancer and other cancer risks so we can implement strategies for screening and management of these, uh, of these men. Note that in follow-up sessions, the next two series, we're gonna focus more specifically on PARP inhibitors and review the recently completed clinical trials that have led to their approval for metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. We'll also talk more about somatic genetic testing in those discussions and talk about implementing advanced cancer care in our clinics. So this is the first part of that three-part series. And now I'm gonna to move to introduce you to our faculty and to get on with the discussion. Uh, I'm very pleased uh, that we're joined tonight by Drs. Geary and Simonak. Dr. Geary is a medical oncologist and the director of the cancer risk and genetics at the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at, at Thomas Jefferson University. Her research focus is on developing the field of genetic testing and genetic counseling for prostate cancer. She developed the first men's genetic uh, risk clinic in the U.S. that's linked with the multidisciplinary team for prostate cancer management, and she spearheaded prostate cancer genetic testing guideline development. She contributes her with her expertise at the national level, serving on uh, several NCI and ASCO committees. Dr. Simonak is a genetic counselor who specializes in both gastrointestinal and genitourinary related hereditary syndromes. She leads the Early Detection and Genetics or EDGE BRCA positive men's clinic at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. Thank you both Dr. Simonak and Geary for being here. Um, let's get started as we move into the first section on genetic testing. So Dr. Simonak, uh, let's start out kind of generally. Can you discuss what is meant when we talk about genetic testing for cancer? And maybe specifically, can you talk about the differences in which what we call somatic genetic testing and germline genetic testing? 
Yeah, so a very important distinction that we have here. So usually somatic testing, which I think is what most people listening in will be familiar with, this is testing that's performed typically on a tumor sample and we're looking at the genetic makeup and, and composition of that specific tumor with the goal of trying to determine whether or not there's targeted therapies, understand kind of the, the biological risk that we're seeing for that tumor versus something that's germline. This is gonna be representative through like a blood or saliva sample uh, of all of the cells in our body and essentially um, representative of inherited risk. So changes that would have been passed down from either mom or dad versus somatic testing or somatic uh, variants that are things that develop over time. So when we think about doing genetic testing in, in the sense of prostate cancer with germline genetic testing, we're thinking about looking specifically at genes that we know are associated with inherited forms of cancer. And again, Dr. Simonak, when, when I do my uh, genetic testing, either at the germline or somatic level, I sometimes will get reads that come back and say that they're pathogenic or likely pathogenic. And sometimes they'll say a variant of unknown significance. What, what are these three categories? And can you maybe explain to us more about what they mean? So it, the ACMG has actually established um, essentially guidelines that clinical genetic testing laboratories use to help determine those classifications. So what do we classify as being pathogenic versus something that's inconclusive? So typically something that's going to be pathogenic, this is going to be an alteration in that gene, a point mutation, a deletion, maybe a duplication that is causing that gene not to function properly because these genes are really important for helping protect our body from developing cancer, we can then see subsequent increased risks for specific types of cancer. So that's what we think of with a pathogenic variance is this is something that's gonna increase the risk for cancer versus something that's an inconclusive or a variant of uncertain significance. This is essentially saying to us that we found something that's different from expected, different from our reference sequence, but we don't have enough information or, or data at this point in time to say that this is in fact disease causing or if it's actually just normal human variation. And with the research that's been done, about 80 to 90% of the time when we have a reclassification or um, a reevaluation of these inconclusive results, they end up being negative. So these inconclusives are, are not, um, not a fixed interpretation. Excellent. You know, Dr. Geary, um, I've noticed in my practice and, and, you know, when I look around at other providers, there seems to be a host of different ways to get genetics, multiple different panels available to evaluate them, either at the germline or somatic level. Can you talk about some of the features of these different available genetic tests and um, maybe some of the differences between the genetic testing panels? Yes, that's a great question. Thanks again for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. And uh, this field has really taken off in terms of the options that are available for um, germline testing of patients. Um, there really are uh, different size panels that are available. That's one of the different options. So panels can range from a focused set of genes, very small, so three, four, five set of genes um, that might be available for um, genetic testing. Um, genes that only have guidelines associated with them, because as we know, um, there can be many other genes that are tested that don't have NCCN guidelines associated for management. So there can be panels that are focused only on the guidelines-based um, uh, management 
And then there can be cancer specific panels. So several of the laboratories have prostate cancer panels available. And these panels include genes such as BRCA1, BRCA2, uh, the DNA mismatch repair genes of Lynch syndrome, HOXB13, PALB2, and several other genes that might be important in, in prostate cancer treatment. Um, and those are so a, a, a cancer specific panel. And you can see that for breast cancer panels or um, you know, GI cancer panels. And then there are larger comprehensive panels that are available um, that kind of cover a host of hereditary cancers and syndromes. These can range really up to 80, 90 genes at this point in time for testing. So we can go from very small and focused to very large. Um, additional options include um, a, a reflex testing option, which is uh, where you start with a small set of genes. And then if a patient is just uncomfortable going with a larger set, start with a smaller set. And then once the results come back from the smaller set, reflex to a larger set of genes. Oftentimes patients just need a stepwise approach sometimes to doing a larger set of testing. Um, not all labs have that option, but a couple of the laboratories do. And that's, um, that's a nice option to have as well. Um, newer technologies are coming forward. So for example, RNA testing is now coming onto the scene. Um, one of the laboratories has RNA testing available and this is being done to help clarify a, a lot of the time variants of uncertain significance and looking specifically at splice sites of these VUSs to get an idea of the functionality. So we're gonna start to see this as another way to help us determine the functionality of genetic variants. So when you're thinking about a laboratory, think about those things, you know, in terms of what panels are available, what are the genes on those panels, the rigor of the way that these um, genes are sequenced and their variant classification. Um, you know, when I say sequencing, are they doing full sequencing with deletion, duplication, rearrangement, or are they just looking at hotspots? Um, and then just make sure that they have variant reclassification programs because as these variants of uncertain significance get reclassified, uh, there has to be a program to update providers about that. In those, typically, uh, for those variants of unknown significance, is it typically like every six months or something like this that they'll do the reclassification and they'll send you a notification if it goes from a VUS, as they're called, into a likely pathogenic variant? Yeah, you know, it can actually be at any point in time. Um, as soon as there's more data available, that can happen. So it can happen actually fairly um, you know, within a few months to actually three, four, five, six, seven years out, actually. So it really, um, it's sort of a, on a rolling basis. So I think I'm going to stay on this topic for a little bit because I think the distinctions are important. So I think I'm hearing you correctly. The advantage maybe of some of the larger germline panels is they're more comprehensive. The disadvantage of the larger germline panels is you're going to likely find more variants of unknown signif of significance, or you might find, uh, you know, variants in genes which we really don't know how to counsel family members about what to do for cancer risk. Um, um, the the advantage for doing targeted panels is you can really focus on actionable results where we know how to counsel members. And in all cases, you want to have a lab that really um, is established, is following ACMG guidelines, and is updating you on those variants. You know, one thing for the somatic versus germline, in the somatic genetic testing, I'm often ordering broad panels because you're looking for multiple different mutations, usually in someone with progressive metastatic disease for clinical trials, for approved therapies. And we'll talk a lot about that in subsequent sessions of this talk. Um, also, because you're trying to get tumor mutational burden and also microsatellite instability or loss of heterozygosity results. And so you need to sequence more genes for that. Some of these somatic panels also will do germline next-gen sequencing. 
Uh, is that sufficient when the when you do the tumor in normal? Is that sufficient for germline, or are there limitations there? So uh, really, somatic testing may reveal some clues that a variant is of germline origin. Um, so some of the ways would be, you know, if there's a high variant allele fraction um, in the tumor uh, to normal, is the variant that we're finding a founder allele um, that is being picked up? And does that seem to align with the patient's own ancestry? Um, is the pathogenic variant in a gene that looks like it's concordant with um, the patient's own personal history of cancer or family history, et cetera. Um, but it is not sufficient to deem that a variant is of germline origin if you have a finding from somatic testing. So it really does require confirmatory germline testing to uh, deem that determination. Excellent. And then finally, um, Dr. Dr. Geary, there's a um, you know, there's, there's some of these ger uh, genetic tests that are sort of marketed direct to consumer. Um, are, are they of the same? What are the considerations there? Yeah, you know, and I, I think that um, it, it's, it's, it's really exciting to see that there are these options that are happening for broader access to genetic testing. Um, the population may be thinking about how to assess their risk and, and have accessibility to genetic tests, uh, to these direct to consumer tests. But there really are some very important considerations when it comes to this. Um, these direct-to-consumer tests really are not considered to be at the clinical standards of germline testing when a patient comes in and sees a genetic counselor and has germline testing. Um, oftentimes, there are only specific genes that are on these uh, direct-to-consumer tests, leaving out genes that would be considered for testing based on a person's own personal medical history and their family history. So they may be getting incomplete testing by a limited set of genes. They may also be getting incomplete testing because not all of the mutations are being tested for. So there may only be a couple of mutations or two or three uh, pathogenic variants uh, that are assessed in uh, genes when there may be thousands of, of actual pathogenic variants in those genes. So uh, the, the concern is that uh, you know, an individual may have a direct-to-consumer test and then walk away with a false reassurance that they do not carry a pathogenic variant in a hereditary cancer gene. Um, and, and that would be very unfortunate if they showed up with a cancer or somebody in their family had a cancer because they didn't have complete testing. So I think it, it, it has to be done with a lot of caution. Um, and I think there's more to be done uh, for population awareness about this. You know, Dr. Simonak, we were talking about these now sometimes comprehensive panels you know, do we really need a family history anymore with all this, uh, with all the testing? What role does the family history play in all in all this? Yeah, the, that's a great question. So there's a couple different things when we think about the, the family history's role in actually assessing somebody from a genetic standpoint. So one thing is I'm going to be thinking about, you know, what cancers are we seeing in the family and what syndromes are we going to be suspicious of and what testing do we need to cover based on the family history? Are the genes included on the panels actually going to cover the cancers that are represented? But also, um, as genetic counselors, the family history is a critical tool for us to actually do that risk assessment, figure out the likelihood that we're going to find um, something causative or um, uh, an inherited cause for cancer in the family. There might actually be somebody else in the family that's in a more appropriate candidate for testing. Or even if we go through all of this testing for that patient and things come back negative, the family history still might be very suspicious. So there might be somebody else in the family that we still would want to have genetic testing 
to help figure out, is there still an explanation that maybe wasn't captured or wasn't inherited by this patient? So we didn't, we're not finding anything on testing for them. But also we can make recommendations for uh, family members for screening based on family history. So if we're not capturing all of that and, and just kind of ordering a panel, we could be missing some of the, the nuances in, in actually figuring out what's going on for a family. Excellent, Thea. You know, Dr. Geary, some of what we're talking about is, you know, it obviously um, findings may affect the, the man. We we're going to talk about PARP inhibitors a little bit later. Um, but as Dr. Simon just said, um, it's obviously they have implications for the family members. You know, so genetic testing is a little bit obviously different than something like PSA testing. You know, what are some of the um, protocols and recommendations that you have when you're approaching a patient about genetic testing, you know, germline, and then, you know, I think maybe a little bit less on somatic, but either one, what are the, some of the discussions that you have and thoughts that you have? Yeah, so for germline testing, the, the key takeaway is that the patient needs to have, make an informed decision for this. Um, and that involves going over several sort of key elements about what does it mean to have germline testing? These include you know, first of all, um, having access to their information with, by the genetic counselor or their provider, their personal medical history, their family history. And then they just have to have an understanding about the testing itself is actually testing for hereditary cancer syndromes, hereditary cancer risk, um, thinking about how that testing is done, what are the options for the genetic tests, such as the different panels that we mentioned earlier, the pros and cons of those various panels and testing, um, you know, what are the various types of results that could be uncovered, as Dr. Simonak had, has already um, described, uh, what is the impact on their, their own health going forward, um, screening recommendations, treatment recommendations, and for their family, and then very importantly, um, financial insurance considerations. One of the most important laws to remember is the GINA law, which uh, is the, for genetic discrimination. And so here, the, the law covers health insurance and uh, most employment scenarios, does not cover small businesses, but uh, the law does not cover, does not provide protection for life insurance, long-term care um, and disability insurances. So it's very important that a person who does not have a pre-existing condition Think about this, get their plans in place, and maybe then circle back for genetic testing in case their genetic results reveal a pathogenic variant or something of that nature. So, you know, other things to keep in mind are, you know, take a look at the patient's own situation, their psychological condition. Are they able to cope with the information that they're hearing? And what is their preference for testing? So there's multiple elements to think about with genetic testing. Yeah, and so, you know, I've seen it on some states require it, I think, as you said, and also you probably do it as a practice. You're actually formally consenting them for, for testing when you're sending any germline testing. And that's, I think that's a great uh, uh, point. Um, you know, we have the pleasure of having both you, who's, an, who's a medical oncologist, but an expert in genetics, and then Dr. Simonak, who's a genetic counselor, an expert in genetics, obviously. How do you get them and how do you get them involved? When do you send patients to a genetic counselor? When do you think, you know, when, when is that appropriate? Yeah, so I think it's so important for healthcare providers, whether it's surgeons, medical oncologists, um, more and more primary care providers, to be proactive, to link with genetic services, whether it's in their area or if they don't have access, to think about how they can link, um, you know, or have strategies to think about genetic counseling. And so um, obviously when patients meet testing criteria, so providers need to start to become more aware of what those testing criteria are. And I think genetic counseling programs are very good about providing that type of education, you know, for what are the testing criteria, referring them to genetic counselors. Um, those with that, that have a strong family history uh, should be referred for genetic counseling. 
Um, of course, patients that have very high anxiety. So uh, many practices are very much in, involved in ordering genetic testing these days. However, there are patients that have very high anxiety and really need to see a genetic counselor to kind of talk about what this testing means. Um, and, you know, thinking about more and more as we're seeing precision therapy and management implications, those patients would need to be referred for genetic counseling and, and testing um, options for them. And there, we'll talk about this, I think, is, is just more how to do that, how to make that happen from a traditional approach where all patients used to be referred up front versus thinking about the rising demand for genetic counseling at this point in time. Excellent. And then, and then Dr. Simonak, so I, you know, it's a lot of nuance there. But you would prefer if I test my patient and I find a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant, I think no question that patient should probably be seeing you. Right. Yeah. That, As a that genetic counselor, and I think Dr. Geary nodded, she agrees. <laughs> if I see some variants of unknown significance, I might talk to the patient about it, see their comfort level. If they have a strong family history and a lot of variants of unknown significance, my practice is to still send them to you because. I really don't, you know, I'd rather have you be at the, the quarterback in that situation. Um, so let's, let's then just recap this first segment uh, and we'll move on to the second segment. So first, the key points of, of genetic testing, and we were talking about genetic testing in general in that first segment, is that germline genetic testing refers to, the DNA, to DNA testing with the aim of identifying pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants in selective genes. And as we discussed, it can be targeted, it can be cancer specific, or it can be more comprehensive. Larger panels have a greater chance of finding variants of unknown significance, of finding incidental findings, um, and finding pathogenic or likely pathogenic uh, mutations in genes with no current clinical guidance around the, what we wanna counsel our patients uh, to do. There's lots of different genetic labs um, that can have variable quality of their DNA testing. Um, they can have also variable quality in how they do their variant classification and reclassifications and how they look at and contribute to the public databases and use that data. So it may be important to use labs with more longstanding clinical experience um, for those databases. Direct-to-consumer tests are not held to the same standards as the uh, clinical germline testing. And so there's also a little bit of caution there. Um, we always get informed consent uh, before doing germline genetic testing in our, in our patients. And in many states, it's required. And we should do that as a kind of a formalized process. So let's move now into segment two and talk about um, germline genetics in prostate cancer in particular. So Dr. Geary, what are the genes that are most associated with, or some of the genes that are associated with aggressive prostate cancer if a pathogenic variant is found? Yes, I think one of the most important genes to, uh, to know about is, is BRCA2. So this is classically hereditary breast and ovarian cancer gene, but of course is linked with prostate cancer. Importantly, it's associated with risk for aggressive prostate cancer um, of higher Gleason score. Several studies have been reported that show that there are poor outcomes among males with BRCA2 pathogenic variants after diagnosis of prostate cancer, as well as higher risk of lethal disease. Um, you know, we, BRCA1 is also very important to understand in terms of risk for prostate cancer, though not as strong data for association to aggressive disease. However, what we're seeing is that there are many, many DNA repair genes that are very important in terms of thinking of treatment of men, particularly with metastatic disease, higher rates of 
uh, pathogenic variants and DNA repair genes have been reported in men with metastatic, particularly castration resistant disease. So these are becoming important for therapeutic options like PARP inhibitors. And the actual risk of prostate cancer remains to be estimated for several of those genes, but is important for therapeutic options. So, you know, in talking about, you know, um, variants in these DNA damage repair genes, you know, some of them that we'll talk in later sessions about like the profound study and others. Um, at the germline level, how many men with metastatic disease are, or with high-grade uh, high localized disease are going to have germline mutations in like, say, these DDR genes like BRCA1, BRCA2, CHECK2, et cetera? Yeah, so as a whole, uh, in terms of the, the entire set of genes that have been reported, uh, particularly in DNA repair, for men in, with metastatic disease, the range has been about 11 to 15%. So 11 to 15% of men with metastatic disease will have a germline pathogenic variant in a DNA repair gene. Individually, that breaks down. So when we think about um, the subsets, such as BRCA2, those have been about 45 to 5% of men with metastatic disease. So the, the actual differences by genes can vary. In the early stage setting though, with lower risk early stage disease, those uh, prevalence estimates are about five to 7% of men who carry um, uh, DNA repair gene um, alter pathogenic variants. And it's interesting because um, and there are some other features that might tip you over into thinking that there might be a pathogenic variant. So higher Gleason score, Gleason greater than or equal to eight has been associated with a higher risk of carrying a DNA repair gene uh, pathogenic variant. Um, family history of breast cancer, interestingly, has been reported to have a higher risk of um, pathogenic variants. And um, whether there's interductal or ductal histology, cribriform histology, um, small studies have reported that a high percentage of those men can have a uh, DNA repair alteration, such as in BRCA1 and 2. That data may be a little bit more conflicting with recent reports. So I think that's evolving at this point in time. For the, um, and that's great for the germline level, that's a great uh, review. You know, as I think about the guy with progressive metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer, and say we didn't find something at the germline, or maybe we're doing genetic testing for the first time, and we're going to do germline and tumor somatic testing, what percentage of those men might have an abnormality in any of those DDR genes, somatic or germline? So, so germline, would, we would kind of go back to the estimates that we mentioned in terms of, um, you know, metastatic castration-resistant disease. So we can even say up to 15%. But on the somatic side, the numbers are much higher. So those have been reported even around 25% or you know, sometimes even 30%. So I think it really varies, but when we're focusing only on the germline, it's about 15%. Yeah, so I think for the, for the guys that you know, might have an actionable mutation, um, but that you don't know about, even if their germline is clear, as they progress through into metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer, probably important to get somatic testing as well for those individuals. And maybe just talk a little bit about what are the options for men that have progressive metastatic disease um, and are found to have a, uh, a pathogenic mutation in particularly those DDR genes. Yes, so this is a very exciting time. 2020 was a landmark year for options for these patients that have metastatic CRPC. Um, for example, uh, Olaparib was approved by the FDA uh, for treatment of, of men that have deleterious or suspected deleterious that goes along with pathogenic uh, kind of uh, nomenclature. Um, whether it's germline or somatic alterations in the genes involved in homologous recombination DNA repair. So, and that's typically after they've progressed on prior treatment. So the, uh, the approval was for those that have progressed through abiraterone or enzalutamide. And that was based on the profound study. Um, which will be discussed in more detail in subsequent webinars. 
Uh, also, rucaparib was approved by the US FDA for men with BRCA mutated uh, metastatic CRPC. Um, these men had to have been treated with a prior androgen um, receptor directed therapy and taxane based chemotherapy. So these uh, approvals are not for frontline treatment yet um, in the metastatic CRPC setting. Uh, we will may see that from, from further trials, um, but right now it is an option after progression of standard therapies. And then there's other um, FDA indications for other PARP inhibitors such as norepirib, um, you know, that have been uh, reported and that are still undergoing, um, uh, that are in the trial phase, but, but that do have FDA designations as well. Um, for patients that have mismatch repair deficiency, so for men with metastatic CRPC who have DNA mismatch repair deficiencies, uh, there can be an option for immunotherapy there uh, with pembrolizumab, that's based on an FDA approval for these patients that have um, MSI high or uh, demonstrated MMR deficiencies and that have progressed through um, prior therapies. So of course, there's lots of precision trials that are ongoing. I think this is really a continuing to grow and is a very exciting area. Yeah, and I remember that I was, um, for pembrolizumab, I was excited at that approval because it was, I think, the first tumor agnostic you know, approval based on a molecular marker. And I thought, wow, you know, the world is really starting to change, have this focus on genetics like we're talking about tonight. So Dr. Simonak, just to move back to germline testing for a second, given what we've discussed, on what patients that have been diagnosed with prostate cancer should we order, or is it preferred for us to order germline genetic testing? So, Across the guidelines, NCCN guidelines, we're going to be thinking about men with metastatic prostate cancer, men that have high risk or very high risk disease. If you have an individual who's Ashkenazi Jewish and has a history of prostate cancer, certainly we're going to want to be talking to those men about doing genetic testing. But then we get kind of into the nuances of family history, um, like Dr. Gary was talking about earlier, family histories of things like breast cancer or ovarian cancer or pancreatic cancer, um, or potentially family histories of things like Lynch or um, uh, colon cancer or uterine cancer. So there's that's where a lot of the family history is going to come into play and actually thinking about the more nuanced guidelines that we have in place that depend on not just that history of prostate cancer for that patient, but as well as kind of that supporting family history. And certainly, if you have a patient that is um, interested in discussing genetic testing, you know, I, I am always more than happy to see somebody who wants to talk about this in more detail. Maybe they have a lot of questions. Maybe they're really concerned about their family history. And it's a matter of sitting down and kind of talking through that. And certainly, always want to highlight the fact that genetic, doing genetic testing is absolutely voluntary. So we have these guidelines in place that are saying that we should be talking to these patients about doing this testing, but ultimately it's the patient's decision. And as Dr. Gary was mentioning, having those kind of that pre-test conversation with the patient is going to help them make that decision. And you know, it's interesting that sometimes where my heart is, I sometimes think, well, every patient diagnosed with cancer needs genetic testing of their germline to figure out if, you know, what contributed to them getting their cancer what therapy is going to be happening in the future. Um, and that may be a little bit overzealous, maybe, but there's, there's some thoughts that like, maybe we should be doing the germline testing in people who have higher risk of having germline mutations, like you mentioned, higher risk cancers, metastatic disease, and particularly have higher risk of mutations in, in things that are going to drive aggressive cancers. And then if we find those individuals and see if they have germline you know, positivity, it might, it might help us identify other people at risk in their families 
And I think we've touched on it, but can you kind of go a little bit further, Dr. Simonak, into this idea of cascade testing and, and what, that, what that is? Yeah, so with all of this testing that we're doing for these patients, if we're finding a pathogenic variant, this is gonna have implications for other close family members. So most of these are gonna follow a dominant inheritance. So for somebody's siblings, kids, we're looking at 50% risk that they can also carry this. So with cascade testing, we can do very targeted testing for those at-risk family members to see whether or not they carry the same pathogenic variant that was identified in our initial patient or, or our proband. And so this is gonna be really important when we think about, are there other family members who are unaffected? They have no cancer history. Are there increased screening that we should be doing for them to help either prevent a cancer from happening or catch it earlier when it's more treatable? And that's really what the heart of of cascade testing is getting at is um, really having that that wave effect across the family and not just um, what we're seeing for that patient. And it's another why uh, I think it's so important that if I find someone with an with an LPV, likely pathogenic variant or a pathogenic variant, that I really need to refer them to their genetic counselor because coordinating you know the cascade testing for sure and the screening for all different cancers you know is really beyond my my scope in many cases. Um, so let's just review what we what we learned in segment in this segment two, the germline genetics and prostate cancer. So here's some of the key points. We said that DNA repair genes and BRCA2 in particular have been associated with aggressive and metastatic prostate cancer. And that the identification of pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants in genes, for example, in the DNA damage repair genes, has implications for both the patient and uh, his family members. We've had recent uh, FDA approvals of Elaprib and Rucaprib in some settings of progressive metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer for patients with uh, uh, pathogenic variants or deleterious uh, um, uh, alterations in these genes. There's been an FDA approval for pembrolizumab as immunotherapy uh, for patients with mismatch repair deficiencies found either by um, uh, loss of some of the mismatch repair genes or by microsatellite instability or now high tumor mutational burden status. And there's implications for the patient's family members in cascade uh, testing of, their, of those family members. So now we're gonna move on to the final segment and talk about some of the inherited um, syndromes, we call it, or, or like kind of the broader implications of some of these genes. And, you know, Dr. Simonak, let's talk a little bit about how you go about counseling men that we've identified now with a pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant in BRCA1 or 2, who, let's say someone who hasn't developed prostate cancer yet, but they were part of the cascade testing, how do you counsel them about their screening and about their screening, not just for prostate cancer, but maybe for some other malignancies as well? Mm -hmm. So prostate cancer is gonna be certainly one of our top concerns for BRCA1 and 2 for these men, but we're also, you know, so we'll talk about increased screening that we would recommend for them. So usually um, starting at age 40, we're going to be wanting these men to start, you know, prostate screening, PSAs, DREs, making sure that we're keeping an eye on those levels for them. Um, but also things like male breast cancer. So even though this is generally fairly rare in the population for men, we know that there can be an increased risk for them. So doing things like chest wall exams to make sure that there's not any lumps or bumps or abnormalities that are coming back. Um, things like melanoma. So 
Um, there's a, a slightly increased risk for melanoma over kind of general population for these, these BRCA mutations, but doing a, a total body skin exam is, is pretty easy to, uh, to recommend for screening, so there's still consideration of that. But then we have um, whether or not somebody would qualify for pancreatic screening, because we know that pancreas cancer can be one of the, the cancer seen with this syndrome, and certain institutions might have pancreas screening programs or high-risk programs available to them, which is also one of the things where family history really comes into play is that if there's a known family history of pancreas cancer, maybe this is gonna qualify somebody for screening or something that we would wanna talk in more detail uh, with the patient about for that. So if a man has, say, say a guy has prostate cancer, we found this pathogenic variant in their germline for BRCA2. Um, just to recap, you're telling that man that obviously a prostate cancer, we're gonna deal with that, but they should also be doing um, probably male breast cancer screening. Um, they, if they have a family history that has pancreatic cancer in there or even some other considerations, maybe some pancreatic cancer screening, which I assume is imaging based. Yep, imaging based and endoscopic based. Yep, and then they'll, they'll they should get you know even though we have some questions around melanoma, very easy for them to get a whole body exam for for melanoma. You know, Dr. Geary was talking earlier about um, mismatch repair deficiency um, as well, and that's maybe MMR gene mutations are slightly less common um, than the homologous recombination repair deficiencies, but still about two percent of our of our uh, prostate cancer folks. Um, what, what is that related to? Is it prostate cancer and what else? So with these MMR deficiencies or these mismatch repair deficiencies, this is something uh, associated with what's called Lynch syndrome. And so prostate cancer is more newly associated with Lynch syndrome. And um, there's more evidence for some of the Lynch syndrome genes than others. There's five of them in total. Um, but one of the highest risks or primary cancer risk that we see with Lynch syndrome is early onset colon cancer. So we would be thinking about doing increased colonoscopies for an individual. Um, for women, we would think about increased risk for uterine cancer. So um, potentially thinking about uterine screening or biopsies if that's available at their institution or you know, prophylactic procedures. So there's a wide spectrum of cancers that we can see with Lynch syndrome, other GI-related cancers, small bowel, gastric cancer, different urothelial cancers or renal pelvis cancers, even ovarian cancer for women. So when we have something that we're the, like that, that's identified in the family, there's going to be a number of, of different screenings that we would recommend for those individuals. Dr. Geary, before we close out this segment, you know, we've been focusing on these genes that, you know, specific genes that are very related to inherited syndromes, whether that be, you know, BRCA1 and 2 genes, the MMR genes. You know, there's also been developments in what's like polygenetic risk scores, um, which are looking at multiple genes, you know, um, and, you know, maybe we can use them to determine who to screen or not. Can you just talk to the audience a little bit about this polygenetic risk scores? What are they? What are they based on? What's the evidence? Sure. So um, polygenic risk scores or PRS, uh, uh, there's also, you know, short form, they're basically pulling together um, information about risk from multiple common variants that have been associated with prostate cancer, primarily from genome-wide association studies. So these common variants are genetic variation that are scattered throughout the genome. So they may not even be in a gene, they might be in a gene desert. Um, and these, um, these basically SNPs, for the most part, 
are, uh, have been identified to associate with risk for prostate cancer. And then they were pulled together cumulatively for these cumulative risk scores to identify those men that may be either at the highest end of risk for prostate cancer, potentially also on the opposite side of the spectrum on the lowest end of risk for prostate cancer. The clinical role of these PRSs are, are still being determined. There are papers and, and in the literature that show that they're um, you know, that where their clinical value is, is that they may help to define a man's, as I mentioned, their risk, give a better estimate of risk for prostate cancer, help interpret PSA. We always need better interpretation of PSA in the clinical arena, um, or predict younger age of prostate cancer diagnosis. Um, but there is just still some debate about the overall clinical utility in, in the clinical setting. So there is a laboratory that's offering PRS testing. Um, they've limited that to Caucasian men without a diagnosis of prostate cancer. And of course, no prior history of a pathogenic variant in a germline hereditary cancer gene. Um, but at this point in time, the NCCN guidelines do not endorse um, the use of PRS yet uh, for clinical management. We may see that evolving as, as more data are coming out. So we can all stay tuned on that. Great. So let's, um, let's review what we kind of covered in this last segment for inherited syndromes. And this is that individuals with pathogenic or likely pathogenic variants with BRCA1 or BRCA2 are at elevated risk for prostate, breast, male or female breast, ovarian, and pancreatic cancers, as well as possibly melanoma. That men with known pathogenic variants of BRCA1 or BRCA2 that don't have prostate cancer should undergo prostate cancer screening, likely beginning at the age of 40, have annual breast exams and consider total body skin exams. Pancreatic screening may be recommended based on their family history of, of pancreatic cancer and can be done by imaging or endoscopic ultrasound evaluations. Let's move to the questions and answers for, for a few minutes. Um, we're gonna bring up these questions and I'm going to then, uh, um, uh, I'm going to then uh, field them out. Uh, there was one question that said, will there be a discussion of the concerns around the profound study, the weak control arm, some of the crossover? Um, yes, um, I'm just going to answer that for the group. The whole uh, second session of this, which is going to happen on April 14th, is gonna center around the profound study. Um, and I really encourage you to, to go the, to come to that session. We're gonna have Drs. Vanderwill and Anton Arrakis talking about those results. Uh, there was another question maybe for Dr. Geary. It said, you know, since there's some difficulty finding evidence to support prostate cancer screening in general, and rather I would say because the evidence around prostate cancer screening is, is muddled, is the way I would put it, particularly by the PLCO trial, um, they said, what is the evidence for screening family members, you know, and how were outcomes maybe improved? And I would encourage you just to focus it, maybe talk about the impact uh, study as one of these studies, but what's the evidence around screening people who are, we know are BRCA1 or 2 positive? Yeah, so you know, I think it's true that, you know, there has been this, um, you know, gray area of, you know, 
population-based uh, PSA screening and probably brings into play a lot more of doing screening based on risk. And so this is where some of the genetic information can become particularly useful, but it's just having the evidence to support that. And so the impact trial looked at male BRCA carriers, BRCA1 or BRCA2, and has been uh, enrolling them and following them over time compared to controls, non-carriers of BRCA mutations. And they did report that particularly for BRCA2, those individuals had um, higher rates of earlier disease diagnosis, but also uh, more aggressive disease um, that was diagnosed as well. And so um, this type of evidence is building as far as, um, particularly for BRCA2 informing screening. The NCCN does say, you know, BRCA2 carriers should begin their prostate cancer screening at age 40. That's recommended, suggested for BRCA1 carriers. Um, but there's also an NCI trial that's going on right now that is enrolling individuals that have a host of, of, of pathogenic variants and several DNA repair genes and other hereditary cancer genes like HOXB13. It's a natural history study. And so I think that's a great avenue for carriers of pathogenic variants to be referred to the NCI and enroll in this study. I think it's, it's really important to get more data. Wonderful. And, and, you know, from my two cents, I would say, you know, every every study has some flaws, but the impact trial kind of solidified a lot of things that I knew. And I would very much encourage the, the audience that you're really, you could be playing, even though only about 25% of people with BRCA2 mutations are going to develop prostate cancer, I think you're really playing with fire and like omitting screening uh, in, the, in those men starting at age 40, I think can be dangerous because of how many 437s and above were diagnosed from those carriers. I think there's also consortiums looking at, poly, uh, at genomic risk scores and polygenic risk scores, as, as Dr. Geary touched on earlier. And we're going to see more evidence come out there for, for looking at how we can stratify potential screening. It's going to come out of trials. The last question, which, uh, which we can take, is, um, is uh, about are these tests covered? You know, um, are they covered by Medicare, by private insurances? Are they covered when they meet the guidelines? Can, can, can either Dr. Simonak or Dr. Geary, can you address that? Happy to happy to tackle that. So th this is a question that we get all the time. So most insurance companies, and I say that I say that with a grain of salt, will follow the same NCCN guidelines that we use to determine who qualifies for genetic testing. That's not the case for all of them, and there can be more specific criteria that they utilize. But whether or not genetic testing is covered is also completely separate from what the out-of-pocket cost could be for the testing. So, um, and Medicare does have their own criteria that they use for this as well. So if somebody has prostate cancer in Medicare, um, that doesn't mean that it's not gonna be covered. Um, there are criteria for that. But um, in terms of out-of-pocket costs, so a lot of this comes back to deductible, coinsurance, kind of any, any typical test that you would see. Um, but a lot of labs are now offering patient pay prices so this is a, a cost that you pay directly to the laboratory. It doesn't go through insurance. The most that you would pay is $250. So for this is a great option for patients that have really high deductible plans um, or haven't met a lot of their deductible yet, or maybe even patients that don't have insurance. This is a good option for them too. Um, and I will say that there are some labs that are also offering sponsored testing programs. So this is testing that's free of charge if individuals meet criteria. So testing is not as um, high cost as it used to be, and it's a lot more accessible from, from a cost perspective. So it's not, it's not thousands of dollars for, for patients anymore. It's, it's quite affordable. And you know, one more thing, we've had a lot of questions come in that said, you know, 
it's great for me. I have you as my genetic counselor. What there's a lot of areas where people do not have access to genetic counselors or can be difficult to get a qualified genetic counselor. What would you guys recommend to do in those areas? Maybe Dr. Geary can can speak to it or or, or Dr. Simonak. Yeah, I think that again, from a you know from a provider perspective, um, I think it's very important to proactively seek out: is there genetics uh, programs? Are there genetics programs nearby uh, that patients can be referred to? If there are not, um, then looking into um, you know telegenetics programs, um, telehealth is really conducive to um, you know for for this field of being able to provide genetic counseling more remotely. Um, and are, what are those services that are available? Um, and also, you know, thinking about what is the way that I could potentially start offering germline testing in my practice, but do that with hand in hand with a genetic counselor so that there's clear strategies and protocols in place about how to do that, what informed consent needs to be done and who to refer. From a patient's perspective, um, you know, the same thing applies, you know, talking to the primary care doctor, talking to your oncologist or urologist um, is a very important starting point. And also the National Society of Genetic Counselors has um, a, a website, part of their website is you can actually plug in your zip code and they give you the local genetic counseling programs. And so NSGC is a great resource as well to utilize for this, to find genetic counselors. Yeah, I've seen too, I mean, we're getting some questions in the, in the chat again about access. I think everything you said um, for sure and, the, and for providers that really feel like they're at a loss, I think it is a good, it is a good way, just like when we're trying to give, you know, certain newer drugs like Olaparib, Rupaparib, or other things that are approved, we, that's the time that I think if we're having barriers, I, that's when I really use my reps, not to tell me, you know, you know, what drug is what, but like, how do I get this to my patient? Same thing for a lot of these genetic tests, you know, what are, do, what, what do they have available? Um, one of the participants said they can, they can't even get their patients to do um, uh, uh, tel uh, telehealth sometimes, um, but you can do this, they can do telephone appointments. Um, so I think that that's a, um, I think that like, you know, there's a lot of options and, and please leverage some of the people that are offering the, the test there. Let me see if I can, uh, there's one more question that I think they want me to answer or ask the, the, the group. And I just wanted to quickly mention that I think this is what you were getting at, Dr. Ross, is that a lot of these genetic testing laboratories have genetic counselors that work there. So if you have a preferred laboratory, you can always get your patient set up with post-test counseling through a genetic counselor at that laboratory. So there, there's a lot of options in this. It, it definitely needs to be a collaborative process because this is still so new in, in this space and, and there's, um, there's not as many of us as, as there needs to be. I'll just add also that technology can also be used here. So videos to help providers give that pre-test informed consent so that they, they can then order testing. And we have like a national trial going on now, randomized trial looking at a web tool versus genetic counseling. And so we are hoping to this way disseminate, you know, access to pre-test um, education. One, one wonderful, wonderful points. Um, and, that, and I think that covers the, um, how we can get access. Now we're getting towards the conclusion of our of our program. Um, I first want to thank the AUA, also Dr. Geary and Simonak for an excellent discussion. Um, I hope to see everyone here as it builds into the second part of this three-part series and we go deep into uh, trials like the Profound Trial, like the Triton Trial around PARP inhibitors and think about some of the uh, um, controversies and clinical trial landscape there. That session will be on April 14th. 
Thank you again for attending and I'll turn it over now to the AUA staff.